Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB. And if you're listening to us, you know that you're here for IAB Real, where the leaders of the Interactive Advertising Bureau and the IAB Tech Lab get together to get real with you, our stakeholders, our constituents, our audience, and just plain people who are interested in the world of digital marketing and media. I'm here with my partners, not in crime, but in solving crimes, David Cohen, the president of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, and Dennis Buckheim, the president of the IAB Tech Lab. Hello, Dennis. Hello, David. Hello. Rental. So before we start, I want to give a public service announcement for our entire audience. I want to alert them to our upcoming events in our IAB Brand Disruption Fall Series. September 9th to 11th, we are doing the IAB Podcast Upfronts from noon to 4 p.m. every day. It's all virtual. It's open to brand marketers and agencies only. There will be thousands of people attending to, uh, to hear, to uh, discuss, debate, and to buy advertising time and sponsorship time on the best podcasts in the world, from the best podcast producers in the world. Following up on November 9th and 10th, 2020, is the IAB Brand Disruption Summit, also open to brand marketers and agencies only. The Brand Disruption Summit is the digital industry's largest gathering of direct brands, incumbent brands, agencies, publishers, venture capitalists, and technology partners. It's really where the world of brands is going. Um, and uh, a little bit in between those, not really a part of our brand disruption series, but it's still very important, uh, is the IAB Tech Lab Reboot 2020. Dennis, you know a lot about this. Uh, world's changing in a big way all around us. The opportunity in ad tech is to design a better blueprint for a stronger and more sustainable, more flexible ecosystem that can better withstand the sort of drastic changes we've seen in 2020. So it's a very eventful, literally eventful uh, uh, fall, uh, late summer and fall that we have ahead of us. So we really encourage everybody to uh, sign up and uh, be there. Let me, uh, uh, now that our PSA is over, let's turn to some of the topics of the, um, of the week because it's been a pretty active week. Maybe the, uh, the hottest hot button of the week involving our industry has been TikTok and the uh, Trump administration's uh, executive order that is basically seeking to end TikTok from, uh, from operating in the United States uh, based on some uh, national security considerations that it hasn't been very explicit about. Uh, David, you've got daughters. They look at TikTok. Do you have a feeling about this? Uh, I do. I, I am... Uh routinely amazed at the amount of time. My youngest daughter finds it a badge of honor, actually, to tell me how much time she spends on TikTok every week. And it is, uh, it's absolutely mind-numbing. So from a uh, consumer standpoint, it is, um, and I, I myself have gotten sucked into the vortex. You just lose yourself in kind of this endless, infinite loop of, uh, of entertainment. So uh, it is definitely a cultural phenomenon. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I liken it, actually, to... Uh, the rise of uh, Snapchat, 
you know, I think it was very much a kind of similar trajectory, consumer usage through the roof, still trying to hone the, uh, the advertising proposition, uh, you know, really pushing the boundaries as to what they could be doing there. So I think the TikTok is in a very similar space, which is super exciting. Um, you know, the, the conversations as to who would be the best suitor, uh, I believe it's um, Microsoft and uh, Twitter are the two that I, I, I've heard uh, have been in the kind of in contention. Uh, and both would be interesting for different reasons. Uh, I, I think about Microsoft um, and their kind of deep um, uh, knowledge of the, the youth culture space with their Xbox franchise. I think about kind of what they've done with the LinkedIn community, obviously a different audience, but you know, a similar kind of uh, social play. So Microsoft does know how to, uh, to do this and they obviously have the capital to needed to invest in a kind of burgeoning uh, platform. So that, that could be super interesting. Twitter, I think is probably less realistic uh, considering the valuation that TikTok is getting uh, you know, on the street and kind of the, you know, Twitter market cap, I think that Microsoft will be a much more likely uh, suitor. So I hope that actually comes to fruition. Well, you know, I, I, yeah. one thing that I'd like, well, another thing that I've heard also, Scott Galloway, uh, the erstwhile NYU uh, professor, has been uh, uh, prognosticating that it might be uh, Disney. So they've gotten a lot of uh, attention. Um, we should probably add here that we have zero knowledge about any of this, that we are kind of recipients of the same kind of It's not even rumor mongering. It's basically pure, pure out and out speculation. But I do have one question. And Dennis, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. You may not know a thing about this. But to the untutored among us, and I would include myself as untutored because don't have kids. I don't have any natural reason to go on to uh, to TikTok to find out what's going on other than a professional reason. TikTok would seem to be kind of like, just like, uh, um, you know, YouTube or just like uh, Facebook. It's kids posting about things. But I hear tell that there are significant kind of algorithmic differences. Uh, among these platforms that actually make them fundamentally different from each other. That TikTok is not just um, uh, YouTube with a focus on kids dancing. It's something else entirely. Can you help us parse that? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think, and it's, it's actually uh, very much a point I was going to raise about TikTok that it, that makes it vastly different from Snapchat, from YouTube, from even uh, Vine, right, which Twitter acquired and shut down, right, mm -hmm. um, but which was very much a precursor ostensibly to TikTok, right, and had the, the six-second video format. Um, I think, you know, the, the breakthroughs in a way with, uh, with TikTok are very much about the algorithm, uh, very much about the flexibility of it's not just, you know, forced to be a certain length of video uh, a la Vine, um, and, uh, and really, really significantly, and this is where the algorithm becomes that much more important. Um, it's, it's not, it's not actually really a social network, right? It's where, you know, snap depended on you. It depends on you identifying the people you want to interact with, right? YouTube has certainly discovery mechanisms, but, um, but doesn't, it doesn't present you with quite the, the level of rapid fire, recom you know, essentially recommendations of things that thinks you would like. And as David said, I think, um, you know, early on, 
uh, during this, this COVID period, I, I said, okay, well, TikTok joined our board uh, at Tech Lab. I, I damn well better check out their, <laughs> their app. Uh, so I did and got sucked in and found it remarkable how quickly, like ridiculously quickly, it personalized uh, to my interest. And you, know, you select a certain set of things you're interested in, but then it branches out based on you know, what it clearly branches out based on what you react to, what you, you know, where you, it, I, I would assume the algorithm has, you know, a lot of uh, assessing of dwell time, you know, how long you spend in a particular TikTok, uh, you know, do you like certain, uh, you know, TikTokers, right? The, the people who actually create the videos, do you like specific videos? And it just, you know, it, it kind of takes you in all kinds of interesting directions. Um, and I, I think it, it is really kind of fascinating in that regard as a discovery platform. And I actually think, you know, to the point about, you know, the who might acquire them, it's pretty interesting to consider Microsoft for two other reasons. Uh, you know, one, one is actually the algorithmic side, which of course is something Microsoft has been pretty invested in for years. They haven't had as much success with Cortana, for example, as, as you know, you've seen with Siri or or, or others, but, or Alexa, um, but, the, but the, the notion of you know, being able to invest the R&D on an ongoing basis to continue to evolve the algorithm and the formula in many ways that, that works so well for TikTok is a big deal in my mind. And you know, Microsoft would have more resources to do that than Twitter or Disney. Um, and secondly is the, the real, uh, you know, the complex web of global considerations around TikTok uh, and you know, I think that's another area where Microsoft has just had to deal with so much over the years in, in different markets and, and tailoring the operating system and you know, office suite and everything right to, to different legal considerations and consumer expectations. So, you know, can I, can I actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Randy, just one thing, just apropos of uh, nothing other than kind of just came to my mind. Uh, I was um, turned on to the daily podcast by you, Randall. So that was uh, that was great. The I New York listened, Times, the Daily. New York Times, yeah, the Daily. Um, and I listened to um, a podcast they had recently with Jack Dorsey, mm-hmm. uh, who I don't know if you listened to that or not, but he I was listening actually on my run this morning. Yeah, so he was actually talking about kind of algorithms uh, and the potential to uh, they're very they're very much a black box. You have no idea what goes on in them. To to think about transparency in the kind of algorithm space and give consumers potentially an option to choose kind of an algorithmic. Uh, so it's not just entirely AI or machine learning. There's actually a human uh, input, which I thought was super interesting because uh, I agree that it has tuned to my likes very, very quickly, but it would be good to know um, what it knows, like what it thinks it knows and maybe help me fine tune that. Well, well, you, you you leapt ahead of me because I think the uh, the big aha that we're we're coming to here that is not actually apparent to the average citizen might be completely self evident to the technically adept in the industry, but not to the average citizen is first of all, um, not all social networks are alike, and not yeah. all interfaces are alike. Even though, as the average human being sitting in front of a screen, you might think this is all the same thing. But they're not. The difference uh, uh, among a, a TikTok algorithm, a YouTube algorithm, a, uh, a Facebook algorithm, an Instagram algorithm, even though it's owned by Facebook, these things are, are, can be vastly, vastly different and drive vastly, vastly different behaviors. And if you own one of them and you're successful at it, 
You may be successful at that one thing, but somebody can come along with a completely different thing that can either subvert you or, uh, or augment. And I think, so that's a large part of the, the debate here. And I should add that one of the most interesting things that I read uh, about this was a July um, uh, piece online written by uh, Ben Thompson, the, um, the proprietor of the uh, Strategery uh, uh, newsletter, uh, lives in Taiwan, a real savant when it comes to business and strategy broadly, but the digital industry uh, specifically. I mean, he was actually making a case for a U.S. government crackdown on TikTok on the basis of, you know, that, that algorithm may actually have the, the capability of serving the interests of the Chinese Communist Party, and those interests may, in fact, be inimical to, uh, to U.S. interests. I, I, I didn't buy the whole argument, but it was, in fact, well-argued, at least to, to, to a far better extent than the Trump administration said anything uh, publicly. So, so yeah. I, I think what we're kind of you know, approaching here is uh, with this, with the controversies around Facebook and various other things swirling around our industry is kind of exactly what Jack was talking about on the, uh, the Times Daily podcast is the, these algorithms are not just black boxes, they are not understood at all by the general public yeah. and they have consequences. And those consequences are built into them, sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. And that's the, that's the new phase of the industry that we're at, is kind of people, uh, um, legislators, regulators, NGOs, average citizens, pushing at the doors of these algorithms saying, let us in. Which is, yeah, and I think there's a very strong parallel there to, uh, I mean, you know, I, I spend an awful lot of time on privacy related issues these days, right? <laughs> Uh, and there's a very strong parallel to what's happening in, in the privacy realm and privacy compliance and transparency and control around data, uh, consumer data, right? It's, it's in many ways the same thing, right? Um, and, and how is that data used uh, you know, actively by different companies and to what degree is there transparency uh, you know, for consumers and, and control, as David called out, right, to, to actually make changes um, and tell companies, yes, this is okay. No, this is not okay. I mean, I think it's exactly right that that, that very naturally spills over into algorithms as they get more sophisticated. Um, interesting wrinkle with the algorithms, even more so arguably than with you know, data for targeting and you know, measurement and attribution and such and kind of the core advertising use cases with algorithms, uh, you know, they are so heavily proprietary and protected. <laughs> Right, that that there's, I, you know, I think it's a pretty interesting thought exercise to consider. Well, how would you, uh, how would you expose the right, uh, you know, information about algorithms to consumers to make to help them understand what is and isn't happening in the algorithm, give them some control without actually kind of giving away your secret sauce, right? In a sense. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, if you kind of uh, stand at the thousand foot level. And imagine yourself in a uh, congressional hearing where the questioning is all along one line. It, and that line is, Mr. or Ms. CEO, what does your algorithm optimize for? Start listing 
what it optimizes for. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's not giving away proprietary secrets necessarily because the, the proprietary secrets are not necessarily in the what, they're in the how. But uh, you can readily imagine how that becomes a very, very uncomfortable set of hearings for, um, for a lot of companies. But that's, yeah. that is where the public debate is, is kind of going but not in a, in a knowing fashion because people haven't fully understood. Again, when I say people, I mean average people haven't fully understood even how to ask that question. And no, I think that's right. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the what and how distinction is pretty interesting there, although I, I would actually argue that uh, the what uh, can actually be the, very much the core of what's proprietary. And I, I, I think way back, right, to the launch of Google and PageRank, as, mm -hmm. you know, that, that was the game changer for them, right? And, and it, so that's the what, it is the what and the how in that case, but you know, they, they protected page rank as just even a concept as even the what, right? Mm -hmm. that's, it's, but I, I think you're right. Like there's, that, that's exactly what has to sort of be titrated in a way is, you know, <laughs> what, what is shared about the what uh, and to a degree the how, right? That, that, uh, that helps people uh, consumers and governments, right, become more comfortable or less comfortable and make changes, right, uh, with with how all of this operates. And it feeds, I mean, it feeds into, we haven't said, you know, AI yet, right, capital <laughs> and big capital bold letters, um, but it feeds into the, the concerns there about bias and AI and everything, right? It, the, the, right. It, this all argues for more transparency uh, and control, I would say. Yeah, David mentioned uh, the the Daily, uh, the New York Times uh, podcast hosted by uh, Michael Barbaro, and I would you know throw in a uh, kind of a a dramatic uh, full on uh, recommendation. The interview with Jack Dorsey is um, is quite incisive. I mean, I, I think it was really interesting. It was fascinating to see how thoughtful he was and how unspun he was about it. It was also interesting to see. Uh, some of his unspoken biases, which I think are shared in a lot of the uh, the West Coast technology industry, the primary one being is still a an ongoing sense of technological utopianism that you can that you can find your way to the uh, the right ends even if you make some stumbles along the way. But it was very thoughtful. The, the other thing I know that David, you've been listening to because I was listening to it was the uh, the daily uh, two parter on um, cancel culture. And the, uh, the, the first part was stronger, which is basically yes. the recent history of cancel culture and where it came from. But generally, I'd say this is very much a, a podcast that's uh, worth listening to. I want to raise one other thing uh, about TikTok that I'm very intrigued by. And so far, we have not intersected with it fully in our public policy um, uh, unit down in D.C. But we're now kind of, uh, I think, beginning to see the uh, the great unifying, globally unifying internet, you know, uh, fragmenting into uh, national internets. Uh, we've all heard of the great firewall of China. Um, I would argue that GDPR is another version. That's the, uh, uh, the uh, European Union's uh, version of a great firewall. It's completely different because it's not necessarily an ideological firewall, but it does have very significant uh, trade and competitive issues. And uh, the Trump administration going after uh, TikTok and the criticism that um, uh, Trump's uh, trade advisor, Peter Navarro, laid on uh, Microsoft 
uh, kind of was an indication that they want to build a U.S. version of a, of a firewall. What do you think the implications of the uh, kind of the nationalization of the internet have for, uh, for multinational companies? Any thoughts? One, one quick thought is we, didn't, we haven't mentioned WeChat which is also part of the, the Trump ban, right? And, yeah. uh, and that's, uh, I think that that's actually more significant than TikTok, uh, you know, and, and it's more significant, A, because of its, its scale um, is, is even bigger, right? It's absolutely enormous. Uh, and, uh, you know, having been to China and used WeChat, it is crazy how pervasive it is and how you use it for everything from communication to payments, right? Uh, and every, everything in between. Um, but the, I think it's even more significant because TikTok is, you know, inherently an entertainment platform. And yes, it creates some connections across the, the viewers and the entertainers and the entertainers with each other, if you will. But, um, but the, you know, the, the, the core of WeChat is about communication and the notion that, uh, that you're shutting, you're creating a wall that, such that, you know, people in the U.S. would not be able to communicate with people through WeChat in China. Um, you know, I mean, I have WeChat installed, right? I, I do communicate with, <laughs> with, with people I've met in China, uh, you know, through conferences, et cetera. And, you know, the, the thought that that just gets cut off is the beginning of a very bad slope from my perspective in terms of, you know, just it, it creates that, that downward spiral from at least my perspective of nationalism and, and the, you know, the just really negative outcomes that come from that and isolationism and, and everything that that but also makes me wonder if you can uh if you can do that what then prevents the government from saying at&t verizon you're not allowed to put calls through to china right right yeah excellent point. totally yeah and, the, and the other thing that yeah and the other thing that struck me randall when you were doing your kind of walls take many different shapes uh and you know there's metaphorical walls and actual walls i mean you know you could double click on uh, GDPR, you could talk about CCPA, you could talk about walls that are kind of being kind of propped up in, in states, in municipalities, you know, uh, there's a uh, Maryland uh, ad tax. I mean, all sorts of stuff is, we're, we're actually contracting as opposed to harnessing the great globality that the internet affords us, which I think is, to Dennis's point, is troubling. Um, yeah, it, to me, the, uh, uh, the, the, the overarching themes, the line I've been using for, uh, for many years, is uh, revenge of the gatekeepers. Um, now, what makes this not a, a clear-cut good or bad thing is, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I've been rereading parts of the Federalist Papers uh, recently. Oh, my heavens. Yes. And, I, be uh, I believe it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 of course, when you go back, you, you go back to thinking about the founding of the United States, the Constitutional Convention, the founders, and this is pretty clearly expressed in the Federalist Papers, they set up the government, uh, well, partly the, the commonplace, to be not a democracy, but a republic. Um, uh, but part of that was their recognition that uh, uh, democracies can lead to mob rule, can lead to chaos. And by fashioning a republic, they actually fashioned a series of gatekeepers watching each other. Um, that led to a certain slowness of operations, but it kind of meant that um, you, uh, uh, you wouldn't or couldn't descend into chaos. Um, 
what we're kind of seeing now is another version of this tension between uh, uh, democracy, uh, rampant democracy, people saying whatever they want, regardless of whether it's true or whether it's hateful or whether it's harmful. Um, the gatekeepers are using that to kind of come back and say, we need to be back in position again. Now, it also turns out that those gatekeepers have an economic interest in putting those gates up as well. So it's not all altruism here on any side of the equation, but I think we're seeing a large part of this, you know, democracy versus gatekeepers playing out on so many levels, uh, uh, international competitiveness and in trade, uh, competitiveness within industries, competitiveness between and among industries. Um, and it looks again like the TikTok uh, WeChat uh, battle is another variation on that theme. Um, I'd like to yeah. raise, one other issue uh, that was uh, pretty prominent uh, this week, and that is sports, especially television uh, sports, professional sports, college sports. We're seeing more and more of the um, uh, college and professional sports leagues having difficulty figuring out whether they can come back, and if so, when they can come back. Um, the economics of television, David, I'm looking at you here because you're a long timer yeah. in the uh, agency media buying business. The economics of television and the economics of advertising have been bound up with, uh, with big time sports for many, many years. What do you think, just at a headline level, what are the implications for, um, for the media and marketing industries yeah. if, there, if the, the, the lack of sports continues for another year? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. You know, sports has always been a, um, a really interesting um, kind of dynamic. So you have the ad revenue side of the equation, then you have the rights fees uh, side of the equation. And outside of the Olympics, which is net positive in that regard, um, revenues exceeds that of any kind of, of fees associated with it. Uh, every other sport uh, is a losing proposition relative to revenue versus uh, rights fees. So in aggregate- proposition for the media companies. Correct. Yeah. So in aggregate, um, and I just did a quick uh, look before we uh, got on this podcast, uh, ad revenue for all the kind of typical sports that we think about, roughly a $10 billion uh, proposition, rights fees roughly 15 billion. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, there's, there's two parts of that. Number one, where do those ad dollars go? as they're seeking audiences, do they, you know, there's not a lot of places that can aggregate that kind of audience. Um, you know, we have our, our typical places that we go, esports certainly seeing tremendous growth. Uh, we're seeing other kind of um, uh, CTV seeing some growth, but these are big numbers. These are big audiences that uh, need to get reappropriated. So that's number one. And number two, uh, monetarily, what does that do to if you're running a big um, you know, media company and are not paying that $15 billion of kind of rights fees, uh, what does that do to, to your bottom line? Uh, what, or how do you rethink your business? So the things that we think about are those that are sitting on libraries of high quality content, and there's lots of folks that are doing that, um, are in a pole position to take, you know, some of the, these dollars looking for audiences. Uh, so whether that's a a Tubi, a Crackle, uh, you know, in, insert whatever your 
um, your uh, partner is there. But if you're sitting on libraries of content, you're really in a in a really good position. Um, yeah, it, it, that's right. Yeah, I've mentioned before on uh, IAB Real uh, my interest in um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the Pluto, the Viacom yeah. entry yep. here, because what it looks like is a very simple but very creative uh, just a kind of parsing of a really interesting library. And I mentioned to some of our friends uh, over there uh, that it's kind of become my new go-to when I can't think of what else to do because of just simply the way they've positioned and segmented their library to kind of match so many different kinds of interests in what is fundamentally a, a multi, multi, multi-level live stream. Yep. You can get it on demand, but the fun part is the live stream. And you know, they've got uh, uh, channels devoted to, uh, uh, to, to you know, old MTV shows, channels devoted to old horror movies, channels devoted to old horror movies about old houses. Yeah, uh, it's either that or read the Federalist Papers, and I would choose that any day. Yeah, it's, it's a, but you Puffed know, up really. <laughs> <laughs> So, so very, you know, very, very interesting though the the bid up in the uh, the value of libraries. I'm I'm kind of assuming that uh, this is going to be the next wave of M one of the next waves of M and A and consolidation. We've seen it before. It's not the uh, the first time it's happened, uh, but but I think the absence of sports just puts this increased pressure on grabbing eyeballs. And the way you grab eyeballs is with uh, known content. Yeah. yeah, and you take that, and that gets exacerbated by a kind of pushed back, uh, regular kind of television. Um, you know, their schedule is going to get pushed back to November or December. So it's just, it's just on top of it. Um, we don't have live kind of sitcoms or kind of uh, you know reality TV either. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a problem. The uh, uh, our our bosses. Uh, at the IAB, those people we says to wrap up. If they're telling us that we need to uh, to wrap up, so uh, 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 but I'll close with a uh, with a lightning round. Oh unfair, dear, unfair lightning round. Um, Dennis, what else is on your mind? One sentence. Uh, the partnership for responsible addressable media, oh, which is yeah. which is a mouthful, right? But that launched this week as well, and that's our collaboration with the the ANA, Forays, NAI, WFA, all the acronyms, right? Uh, IABN Tech Lab. Um, one hell of a parm sandwich. It's a fam sandwich. It's a sandwich. Less delicious, less delicious, right? <laughs> but but more so, fulfilling. No, more fulfilling, very optimistic about uh, about how that will bring marketers and the top marketers, top agencies into the the work we've been doing on uh, on addressability with privacy and accountability, you know, through Project Rearc and kind of build on that. So that's that's been a, a big development in the last week. David, what's on uh, what's on your mind? What's either keeping you up at night or helping you fall asleep? Well, Randall, this is going to be. Um... Uh, not work-related. I am d figuring out, I'm struggling with how do we pack our car as we take our daughter to Ohio State next Friday, nine-hour drive. If you saw my dining room, you would the laws of physics would dictate that what is in there is not going to make it to Ohio. So we're trying to, I, I get up in the middle of the night and I think, well, how could we possibly, do we send it in advance? Do we send it to the hotel? So all sorts of 
uh, logistics around uh, moving to Ohio State is, uh, is on my mind. And uh, on my mind is perfecting my new pan pizza recipe. So I'm closer to where you are, Ooh. David, than to where Dennis is. <laughs> right. uh, although I have to say that my pan pizza recipe involves packing nothing and going nowhere. And if Fram were Parm, it would be closer to your pan pizza <laughs> exactly. recipe. Exactly. But... <laughs> you could tell, actually tell exactly where my, my head is. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to listen to our listen to our bosses and call an end to uh, to this week's mid-August uh, rendition of uh, IEB Real, where uh, Dennis Buckheim, the president of the IEB Tech Lab, David Cohen, the president of the IEB, and I, Randall Rothenberg, have gotten real with you about the state of our industry, the issues we're thinking of, uh, and we hope and think the issues that you, our lovely audience and stakeholders and constituents are thinking of. Until next week, on behalf of the IEB and IEB Tech Lab, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you again. Bye.